Welcome to another episode of IBSC Exploring Boys Education, a regular podcast in which we engage with the ideas that are shaping the landscape of boys education. I'm Bruce Collins, IBSC Director of Member Engagement, and it's a real privilege to be your host. Before we launch into today's discussion, I would just like to highlight the benefit of IBSC Member Centre. The boy-focused resources available in this members-only repository are vast, and in order for schools to benefit fully, it's imperative that all faculty members have access. This is all included in your membership fee. Feel free to reach out to me if you need more information in this regard. I have really been looking forward to sharing this episode with you. In it, we'll be exploring the digital life of boys. As Jim Sayer, founder of Common Sense Media, asserts, digital media and technology continue to evolve at a dizzying pace, bringing extraordinary opportunities as well as challenges for our nation's young people. Kids and teens are using the immense power of the internet and mobile technologies to explore, connect, create and learn in ways never before imagined. But with this power come ethical dilemmas and challenging issues such as cyberbullying, hate speech, privacy violations, digital distraction and more that are surfacing in both schools and at home. As a result, educators and parents are struggling with how to make sense of this new world and how to empower kids to use technology responsibly to learn, create and participate. In other words, how to be digital citizens. In this episode of Exploring Boys Education, we consult three experts in the field who offer challenging thoughts about the digital life of boys and practical solutions to some of the challenges we face in our schools because of the evolution of technology. Dr. Shimi Kang, who many of you know, offers some insights into the impacts of technology on boys' well-being. We don't let our children, you know, um, eat bags and bags of junk food or wake up in the morning and eat, you know, a whole bunch of candy. So why do we let them wake up and play what I call junk tech? Laura Tierney, founder and CEO of the Social Institute, shares her insight into the challenges schools face paired with some practical wisdom about empowering boys to use social media for good. Rather than saying, don't cyber bully, let's turn that around and focus on the positives and encourage boys to have each other's backs online. Our final guest on this episode is South Africa's leading expert on social media law, Emma Sadlier. Emma, who is the founder of the Digital Law Company, also offers insight and advice from her hands-on experience of reputation management and the work she does with schools. The internet just, it's, it's, it's all just so quick. You know, every person out there, as soon as you have a phone in your hands, uh, you have instant access to an international public permanent platform. So let's dive right in and talk with Dr. Shimmy Kang, who at the end of 2018 started a conversation online about developing a healthy tech diet. It was a conversation that challenged people to consider again the use of technology. I asked Shimmy to share what prompted her to turn her attention to our use of tech, in particular focusing on children and teenagers' engagement with technology. As I was speaking on parenting and education um, on, on one of my book tours and then later on just, you know, as a keynote speaker, it was undoubtedly every question or the first question I would get was on technology. 
Um, and whether it was a parent asking it or a teacher or an administrator, it was really the source of angst. Um, and, um, you know, it was really on people's minds. And I found myself um, sitting up there on a stage uh, struggling to express what I was trying to express because um, the message really, or, or the question was always, how much is enough? And, or, or how much is too much? And it, it didn't seem like the right paradigm to, to look at something um, so ubiquitous and so present in our lives. So it actually came very organically. I remember I was, I was sitting on a stage and I, I came up with this idea that we have to understand technology consumption like we understand food consumption. Just like the food we eat impacts our body's health, the technology we consume impacts our mind and it is everywhere. And just like we teach children from a very early age um, about food and diet and healthy and junk, we can do the same um, and we must actually do the same approach uh, with technology. And that's actually what launched the, the tech diet, and um, the challenge that you talked about. Shimmy goes on to elaborate on her use of the diet analogy when referring to technology use. She uses Instagram as an example to explain her comparison. Um, so one hour of Instagram can actually be toxic tech, um, which is really um, uh, unhealthy. Um, if what you're doing on Instagram is comparing your life to other people. Um, so young people love to compare and it's, we're very social beings and the teenage brain in particular is driven towards peer admiration. So if you're spending one hour on Instagram and you're looking at people's lives and their vacations and their awards um, or the parties they go to and you're comparing and you're feeling left out or not good enough, you're going to release cortisol. And all of a sudden that one hour of Instagram is toxic because cortisol erodes our immune system and impacts our health and leads to depression and anxiety. Okay, so that's one hour of toxic tech. Um, on the opposite end, if you're spending one hour of Instagram and you're reading inspirational quotes from people that you really admire, or you're looking up creative um, activities that really um, excite you and, and are part of your passion, um, some kind of art or, or let's say creation of some video, that one hour is actually going to release serotonin, serotonin um, and good neurochemicals. These lift us up. They make us feel good. And now you're engaging um, and growing as a person. That's what I would call healthy tech. Um, and that's good tech that actually um, helps us grow and learn. And in between those two, toxic and healthy is what I call junk food tech, um, which is like junk food, a little bit won't kill you. But if that's all you're consuming, it will start to have a negative impact. And junk food tech in this example would be, let's say, scrolling Instagram. You're just kind of scrolling it. You're not engaging. You're just kind of like eating a bag of chips. You're not even tasting it. It's just going in and it's very mindless. Um, that's why I would call the junk food tech. So I use these three to understand, to help give an understanding for our daily minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment consumption and um, in a way that's familiar and can be applied um, very practically. In preparing material for her new book, The Tech Solution, which launches next year, Shimmy has gained real insight into what the research says about the negative impact of technology on teenagers and children. Let's just start with the physical impact. So um, boys who are playing video games, let's say, we are actually seeing swelling in their finger joints that can lead to arthritis later in life. We're actually seeing for the first time 
nodules in the back of their um, cervical spine because of the posture. Um, tall boys in particular, uh, we're seeing more back problems and postural related issues. Um, the sedentary behavior, even the way the body is crouched over looking at a phone or laptops, we got to remember we evolved from hunter-gatherers. Um, and that crouched over position where you're not moving, um, even if you're just scrolling or playing a video game, sends the signal, the neurons don't know why you're crouched over not moving, looking at faces. It's like, are you in a cave? Is there a famine? Is there a predator? And it will fire the stress response. Um, so um, with that response, of course, we see um, uh, uh, adrenaline being released, which leads to anxiety, so panic um, and anxiety symptoms. And we see cortisol over time, which can lead to depressive symptoms. We know that anxiety, depression, body image issues, um, and addiction are all correlated with tech use. We now have um, the WHO has um, uh, officially um, given the diagnosis of internet addiction disorder and gaming disorder. As an addiction psychiatrist, I see it all the time. Um, you know, young people who are completely hooked um, and it is so disruptive in their family life, um, um, violence in the home, um, a lot of conflict in the home, a disruption of school and sports. Uh, so addiction is defined by, I say, the three C's, so negative consequences, um, out of control, and compulsive or craving. That is very true. If you think of some of the boys um, and you put those that criteria, you'll see all of that um, in, in too many, uh, I would say. Uh, we see increasing so, uh, isolation. Um, and in fact, the studies show that um, when the iPhone came out in 2007, uh, with that, with the iPhone release, we saw rocketing rates of loneliness. Um, again, because the human brain needs to see eyes um, and needs to see faces, human faces, and needs to connect in real life. And although a teen might look fine on the outside, um, if they're doing all their socializing on the phone, that um, is a signal of loneliness and isolation. Um, and I always remind people the most effective form of human torture is social solitary confinement or social isolation and sleep deprivation. Um, and both of those are what's happening in the young people because of tech. So I can go on, but those are some of them. Um, from a brain perspective, we see thinning of the gray matter of the brain and disruption of the white matter, um, which um, can have many, many consequences. So it's really time to talk about this, look at this, and come come with a balanced approach to encourage the healthy tech and really um, uh, look at the toxic tech and the amount of time on tech. I'm sure you would agree with me that we can't throw the baby out of the bathwater because there are also so many positive benefits of technology. There's this whole idea of healthy tech. Um, and just like you know, carrots and blueberries have their great benefits, so does healthy tech. Um, so as we know, you know, in the school system, accessibility um, technology has really allowed for um, um, a more equal playing field and accessibility. You know, my own son, who is um, almost 14 years old, has dysgraphia and written output disorder um, and some executive functioning issues. And he uses Google Voice to dictate. Um, he uses his phone to take photos um, and it really enhances his learning. Um, and I shuddered to think what would have happened if he wasn't able, didn't have the technology to use voice recordings and, and, and phones and all of this to help him. So we're definitely seeing um, benefits in um, young people with learning um, differences. We know that there's been great benefits in autism, 
um, and other aspects. And in general education, I say observe the young person. If they look like they're really engaged and their eyes are lit up and you're seeing something um, quite beautiful happening in their bodies, that's technology leading to that serotonin um, and or oxytocin, which is their ability to connect. Um, but if they look like a lot of young people look kind of frozen zombie-like and raging, let's say at a video game, then you can, it's very obvious to see they're probably on a, a, a toxic tech or junk tech. Shami has been quoted as saying that parents and educators now have a new and important role, which is teaching, guiding and overseeing the establishment of a healthy technological diet for their children and teens. I asked Shimmy what her advice would be to teachers of boys in this regard. Even the healthiest of things can become unhealthy if we consume too much. You know, so for example, if we just ate blueberries all day, um, you know, and we're not sleeping or moving our bodies, you know, that that's going to become a, a bad thing. So first things first, um, you know, we really have to look at balance and self-care. So I tell um Teachers and parents um, give the message of routine, regular sleep, routine, regular exercise, and routine, regular positive social real life connection. Um, those are the basis of life. We cannot survive as human beings, um, optimize ourselves without those things. Then when we look at um, technology consumption, um, which is now after the basics, which all take time to sleep, exercise, and be in the real world. Um, then when you look at the time spent on technology, you really want to go for the healthy tech. Um, and that's where we guide children and get them excited about them and expose them to it. Um, and then you give the message, okay, what's your pizza and chips on a Friday night? Is it a video game? Is it scrolling social media? How can you limit it? How can you monitor it? Um, and I think this is very relevant um, for teachers and administrators because I don't know anyone who, um, uh, or very few people who tell me that they have, um, you know, their phone use fully in control um, and feel the master of it versus being um, uh, kind of controlled by it. So, so this principle is really important for us as adults to look at ourselves um, and look at how we are engaging. I cannot um, emphasize enough how much persuasive design um, is in technology we're using, how um, the concepts, the neuroscience concepts, the psychological concepts, the linguistic concepts are um, fully embedded in all of um, our technology to keep us um, using it. Um, and we have to understand this is not a health industry with regulations. This is a consumer-driven industry. Um, and um, it, it's very hard to compete with that type of neuroscience. Um, and so knowledge is key and um, having some practical plan uh, is, is for everyone. In closing my conversation with Shimi Kang, she commented on the real benefits of digital detox. I think this is also new that, you know, we don't have years and years of evidence on digital detox. But from what I've seen and um, what the research is showing, yes, because um, we, you know, we're, we're seeing kids who, first of all, are not sleeping enough, are not exercising enough, and are not um, communicating socially enough. So, um, and to be honest, many, the, the, the young brain, particularly that teenage brain, is neurologically driven by dopamine to uh, take risks, try new things, and um, 
and, and uh, gain peer admiration. And they're doing all of it online. So providing breaks from the power of technology, I think, has many benefits. Then um, I would say a you don't just want to do that then you want to reintegrate a healthy tech diet be sure to check out the links to shimmy's website in our episode notes and look out for her new book the tech solution which launches in 2020. laura tierney's the social institute is a movement on a mission to empower millions of students to navigate social media and technology positively Some of our North American member schools have already engaged the services of the Social Institute and have spoken highly of their programs and curriculum offerings. To kickstart our conversation with Laura, I asked her to give us some insight into the founding of the Social Institute. Our work at the Social Institute is is based on three years of working with independent schools across the country, over 60 independent schools and huddling with students from fifth through 12th grade. The inspiration for it really came from, you know, just my my personal experience. I remember being a teenager and getting a phone when I was 13 years old. <laughs> and as I was, it wasn't like the phones that we have today, but it did sync me up with friends. I remember, you know, playing video games at home with with friends, my soccer teammates who would come over and in many ways, still like it is today, it, it was how we socialized. And as I, you know, I played a lot of sports growing up, ended up getting recruited to play at at Duke and with the U.S. women's national team. And even on this world-class level, I was still being coached on all the don'ts around yeah. technology and social media. And I figured, man, you know, if I'm playing at a level like this and I'm still not getting proper coaching on how to navigate social media and technology in positive, high-character ways. Who is getting this coaching? Probably no one. And so as I talked with more schools, I started carving out uh, vacation days when I was working in social media at ESPN to start meeting with with students at, at schools. And one thing led to another and it inspired, you know, the work inspired us to to build a team and and, uh, and work with schools across the country. Laura's thoughts about the challenges boys face with regards to social media and managing their online presence or personas are really insightful. I think an important insight that we've you know, unlocked as we worked with students, especially boys, the past three years is that you know, social media, you have to think of it as just it's how you're social through technology. And that's especially important for boys because when you think of social media, you think of, you know, solely Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter. Uh, But for, for boys, it of course, and every student, but especially boys, it extends beyond that. You know, it's how you're consuming YouTube videos. It's what you're, you're texting, it's gaming and connecting in multi, you know, uh, kind of a multiplayer uh, game with people across the country, if not the world. And so I think some of the challenges that, you know, boys uh, particularly face is, you know, one is the the balance of technology in our lives, especially when it's your buddy who's encouraging you to play three more games a fortnight <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to balance, you know, your schoolwork and other priorities 
Um, it's the, uh, the the aggression, maybe the passive aggression that students face um, when it comes to bullying or being pressured to to do something because all of their you know all of their buddies are doing it, and the pressure that social pressure that is amplified on technology. That's why um, when we were thinking originally. You know, how can a school address this, no matter if you work with a partner, if you, you know, build something internally? And, you know, we carved out seven standards that help address challenges that, that all students, including boys, face. One is uh, it addresses this idea of posting what represents your character, you know, because the challenge is, is that you're tempted to sometimes yeah. post things that don't represent you. Another challenge, another standard we have for uh, students is striking a balance, and that's trying to get at the challenge of, you know, you're tempted to uh, use technology so much in your life that you don't have a balance with it. Um, And a third standard out of the seven is this idea of cyber backing (laughs) rather than cyber bullying. And it's, it's so easy to say something that you'd never say to someone face to face, but instead, rather than saying, don't cyber bully, let's turn that around and focus on the positives and encourage boys to have each other's backs online. Another interesting thing to note is the Social Institute's approach, which is a reaction to what Laura calls in an article for NAIS, a relevance lacking top-down don'ts driven approach. It's all about being proactive rather than reactive. And we hear that from a lot of, you know, school leaders and parents. So it's at home and it's in the classroom, school leaders saying, it feels like a game of whack-a-mole, you know, that I'm constantly reacting to situations that come up, you know, an inappropriate photo that's being sent, or um, you're reacting to your child wanting this new app, now this new app. And, and, uh, and so what we remind our partners is that it's all about being proactive. It's about proactive education. And so we're finding that it's helpful to start educating these students, you know, as early as uh, fifth grade, if yeah. not earlier. Um, Cause by fifth grade, you know, we're starting to see uh, the, the ownership of smartphones start to, you know, tip to be the majority over yeah. 50%. And it's, it's, you know, much closer to uh, 80% uh, percent or above by eighth grade. That's so by, by that point, it's, you know, it's, I want to say it's, it's too late. You got to get ahead of the, the tech curve, which is getting to those younger, you know, students as soon as fourth or fifth grade and proactively equip them to navigate these situations on social media or texting or gaming or using Google yeah. Docs even, yeah, exactly. you know. Uh, before they happen for the last 10 years that social media has been around out of, out of good intentions, we focused on the don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't post anything you wouldn't want your grandmother to see. And for students, I mean, these students constantly say they're used to now just tuning out, you know, things like that. And, and frankly, when you usually tell them don't, they might be more likely to want to do it, you know, and (laughs) test, their boundaries. So again, like challenging schools to think about rather than emphasizing don't, how can you focus on the do's instead? Taking a 
cross-departmental approach to this solution where previously, you know, might a school might feel the need for solely their tech department, for example, their tech, their director of technology to put together a strategy addressing digital citizenship or work with the school librarian. But now schools that are approaching this in a holistic, uh, systemic way are making sure that this solution transcends across technology, across counseling, across academic affairs, and um, across the dean's office uh, by grade level. Because social media and social platforms really are woven into a kid's life. And therefore, I think schools are getting ahead of this by weaving it into the the fabric of the school. Like Jimmy Kang, Laura believes that tech can be used positively and in healthy ways. She often talks about social media for good. I asked her to elaborate on what she means by this. When, when schools say, you know, you say social media and technology could be used positively, what does that even mean? And so if I, I, the best picture maybe I could paint for you is, you know, some of these examples, you know, using social media for good is a 12-year-old boy um, huddling with his mom because he wants to get a new Snapchat account and he's coaching his mom on how he would use it uh, positively and how he'd share things to Snapchat that represented his, his values yeah. and his, his character. And he won't be sort of sucked into this belief. Well, it disappears. So I could post anything I want. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, 14 year old uh, girl who is asked to send an inappropriate photo to someone and rather than feeling the pressure to give in, she uses one of many different ways to shut down the request. And she does so very confidently. Um, It's a 16-year-old boy who is pressured maybe by a couple friends to, you know, stay up late, you know, playing their favorite game of Fortnite or some other game. Uh, But they have something a big priority the next day and it's sort of him saying you know what guys uh count me out on this one i gotta you know focus on this tomorrow and make sure you know i'm taking care of that first before i could dive into it uh it's a senior in up in the upper school uh learning about their uh learning about a problem in the world that they want to tackle And therefore going to social media and saying, you know what, I can build awareness about this problem and actually loop in other students and inspire change to address this problem. And and so there is so much good that can come from social media. I asked Laura to close by sharing how school leaders and teachers can partner with the Social Institute to start or further this work in their schools. They can visit our website. It's thesocialinstitute.com. We have free resources for parents. You know, we can certainly share more about our our curriculum and how that is customized to fit schools. Uh, And we're certainly on social media, so they can find us there as well. You might have been intrigued by what Laura shared. If so, you can check out the work of the Social Institute online or follow them as Laura shared on social media. 
For more information, check out our episode notes. Next up, we speak with Emma Sadlier, South Africa's leading expert on social media law. The digital law company, which Emma founded, specializes in educating and advising corporates, employees, schools, parents, teachers, and universities on the legal, disciplinary, and reputational risks of social media. We kicked off the conversation by talking a little about Emma's work and why she got into this area of law. So I was working in a big law firm and um, my clients were journalists. My clients were people who were paid to write articles for the front page of the newspaper. And then I went and I studied in London for a bit and I came back and my clients weren't journalists anymore. They were just ordinary people uh, finding themselves in huge amounts of trouble. And actually one of the very first uh, cases that I, I dealt with, while I was still actually I was still at a big law firm, um, a father phoned me to say that his uh, child had started an impersonation account of a headmaster at the school and had been tweeting some very... Uh, naughty things and um, that they were looking to expel him and it was just on the cusp of his matric exams his final exams and I felt incredibly sorry for this kid because he really it was just a schoolboy prank which had been taken a bit too far and I realized that in the world of social media in the world of uh, publishing content in digital format Prevention is better than cure. You know, when people phone you to say that they've been expelled from school or they've posted something which means that they've lost their scholarship or they're not going to get into the international university they're trying to get into or they're not going to get that job because when you Google them, this thing comes up, then it really is too late. So I think that I realized that education was absolutely critical and that's how I started giving these talks, you know, just making sure that these kids realize that when things go wrong, they go badly wrong and the internet, I'm afraid, doesn't forget. Next, Emma shares what she believes the challenges are that face boys with managing their online behavior and personas. So I think one of the biggest challenges is uh, not being able to see consequences that might be not happening tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, uh, I, I even feel that sometimes I'll open up my Facebook and I'll get a, this is what you were doing 10 years ago. And I think, goodness, did I put that on Facebook? And what we're trying to get these children to do is to make very good decisions now when they are not yet developed enough to make those good decisions, you know, from an uh, emotional point of view, from an intellectual point of view, sometimes we're trying to get children to understand consequences which can be quite far down the line. And, you know, I've been in the space long enough now to start seeing it, uh, where people have been photographed at a birthday party and those pictures come back to haunt them a few years down the line when they're trying to get jobs. So I think understanding the reputational harm when it's very far away uh, is a very tricky thing. Um, the internet just, it's, it's, it's all just so quick. You know, every person out there, as soon as you have a phone in your hands, uh, you have instant access to an international public permanent platform. And it's so, you know, it's such an obvious thing to say, but we almost need to just take a moment to think about how that's changed the whole game because... 15 years ago, journalists had that power. And now we are all publishers. And the legal consequences that come with that, the disciplinary consequences that come with that, and the impact to reputation uh, can be immense. I asked Emma to highlight some of the things of which we as teachers and school leaders need to be aware. So the answer actually, as much as social media is a moving space, 
The answer has been the same for the last five years. And the two biggest issues that I deal with at every single school, and there is no teenager immune from it, um, either as a victim or as a perpetrator, the two biggest issues are cyberbullying and sexting. Um, sexting can come in various forms. You know, we see consensual sexting. We see people pretending to be people they're not. We see um, inappropriate relationships between teachers and students. We see um, all sorts of legal issues as a result of sexting, underage sexting. And I can say that in most jurisdictions in the world, the way that the law treats sexting is that everything to do with underage sexting is illegal. Uh, it's dealt with as the creation, distribution, manufacture, solicitation, possession of child pornography. Um, so we see various manifestations of the sexting crisis. And the other issue that we see is cyberbullying. And I think the main problem with the cyberbullying is that the internet really does allow for people to be anonymous. Uh, it's unusual that we manage to find people. The more we're able to find people, the better. So cyberbullying and sexting, two biggest issues without fail. I think coupled with the sexting issue is the very early exposure to pornography, uh, hardcore pornography particularly, and I think what that's doing, particularly to boys and teenage boys, cannot be underestimated. It's one thing to know about these things, but how we deal with them is another question. I asked Emma to share advice for schools, teachers and school leaders about helping boys manage their online behaviour and holding their students accountable. I think that, you know, if we look at something like the, the online porn crisis, uh, it's often the elephant in the room. I think that we need to talk about it. We need to be talking about the kind of content that children are seeing. Um, we cannot allow teenagers, sometimes even preteens, to get their sex education from Pornhub. It's unconscionable, but I'm afraid that is what is happening because I think a lot of schools are not engaging. And, you know, <laughs> I think there are a lot of areas in society at the moment where teachers, where schools have to pick up where parents are failing. And this should be a parent issue, there's no question about it. But because parents are failing, I think that the, the baton has to be handed to the schools and we have to pick it up and we have to run with it. We have to educate, we have to talk about it, we have to have open conversations about uh, toxic masculinity. And we're starting to have these conversations, I think the more we have them, the better. As I say, I think education is absolutely critical and that can look like various things. You know, it can be, uh, it can be lessons, it can be talks school-wide or grade-wide, it can be, you know, constant, almost incorporating it into English exams, that kind of thing, you know, really education, education, education. Um, I'm also a big fan of a policy. I think that social media policies even from primary school level, are very, very important. And, and, you know, almost having a contract with the kids. We do it with the acceptable use policies when we talk about them using the internet at school. I think we need to have something similar uh, for, for, the, for the mobile phones as well. Um, I think the international trend to banning phones at school is to be encouraged. And it's, you know, I, I understand that social media can be used for good and, and maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. But I think that the relief that you give children when you lift that peer pressure and you actually say, OK, well, actually, phones aren't allowed at the school. And the few schools that I've worked very closely with who've done that, they've seen huge spikes in academic performance, in focus, uh, in a huge reduce, reduction in cyberbullying um, and sexting incidents. And I, I appreciate that we can't make this the forbidden fruit. But if we just say to kids that school becomes 
a cell phone free time, I really think we're on a very, very uh, uh, desirable pathway <laughs> because it's, it's just you take away so many of the issues and you let children be children again. You, let, you, you encourage that face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, the addiction issues, of course, are immense. Uh, the depression, anxiety issues. And, uh, you know, I think Vive la France, uh, France has uh, banned mobile phones at all schools um, up until the end of, of middle school. And, and I think that the proof is in the pudding. We're just seeing much, much happier children and much better results when you take away those phones. I'm a big fan of a smartphone contract. Uh, I think that usually that's done with the parents, and I think that if the parents are giving children phones, then they should be, be doing it. And I think something that the schools could be doing is maybe incorporating in the newsletter a link to a smartphone contract and, and encouraging children and parents to have those um, conversations and to have those agreements. Um, and then I think... I'm afraid it's, it's often having to make scapegoats of people where you do have perpetrators within the system who really mess up. You have to make an example of them and you have to, you have to show how there are consequences. And I am seeing more and more frequently in the South African context, teenagers having criminal charges laid against them. We are seeing a lot of countries around the world passing specific what we call revenge porn laws, what we should call image-based violence uh, crimes. Um, and we're seeing children being prosecuted under those, uh, under those crimes. And I think, you know, it just takes one or two high-profile uh, test cases within each school for things to dramatically improve for all the other learners. Emma continues with some valuable advice for teachers and schools in particular with regards to their approach to social media and the resultant issues. So I think one of the best things uh, that schools can do in combating some of this content is the uh, creation and implementation of social media policies. Um, I like a policy not as a legal document. I think that you've got to make it as practical as possible, having examples, not having it in fancy lawyer language, but in very plain English. And I get children as young as eight to sign these social media policies in very basic terms. What are they allowed to say? What are they not allowed to say? Um, and again, for the, for the teachers, I think it's very helpful. And it's much more of an educational document, I think, than a legal document. Um, I'm a big fan of WhatsApp guidelines for any official sort of school WhatsApp groups, whether that's with parents, uh, whether it's with sports teams, whether it's with uh, the boys in your boarding house. I'm a big fan of WhatsApp guidelines. This is what's acceptable on this group. This is what's not acceptable. These are the hours that uh, people can send messages. Uh, this is the kind of content that we stick to. We don't want locker room talk. We don't want inappropriate memes. Um, if you do send that kind of content, there will be disciplinary consequences. Um, I think the teachers really need to start thinking about who has access to their phone numbers and the extent to which they are prepared to be involved in school business on their cell phones. Uh, it's not unusual that teachers are being contacted late at night by parents over very menial things. Um, I think that uh, I think that I'm a big fan of having two WhatsApp accounts: one for your personal affairs, which you can use at your leisure, and one for the school's affairs, <clears throat> where you are only available for a certain amount of time. Um, I would say that at preparatory schools, at primary schools, there should be no official use of WhatsApp groups. And my worry there is that if you start conducting school business on a WhatsApp group, what you're saying to the parents is that this child does need to have a smartphone and does need to be on WhatsApp. As soon as you insist that a child um, has access to those devices, then the school's duties 
to that child, to keeping that child safe, are much greater. So I'd much rather it was a parent issue. Uh, we say, and I, you know, I really think that smartphones should be banned at all primary schools. I think that smartphones should be banned at all schools during school hours, unless they're specifically used in in the classroom. But I think that I think that smartphones, where possible, should should be banned from schools. Um, I think that uh, those policies that we talked about, the importance of policies, should cover when phones can be confiscated, um, the circumstances around the confiscation, confiscation, how long the school can keep them, when um, those phones can be searched, the circumstances in which a phone can be searched. And in most, most jurisdictions around the world, uh, children have rights to privacy, but those rights can be uh, infringed, as it were, in two situations. One is in consent. So you get consent up front from the parents to say, and from the, the, the kids to say, if you're bringing this phone onto school grounds and we have a reasonable suspicion, then we can search it. Um, so I think that where possible, you get as much consent as possible up front. And we do that in the social media policies. Um, and the consent would be to confiscate and to search. And, and then, you know, there's public interest because where you are um, acting with reasonable suspicion that an offence has been committed on somebody's phone, then I think that phone should be searched. And in most jurisdictions, the law does allow for that. But best would be to have a policy to make sure that everybody is aware of the procedure. Um, from a school point of view, and for all the teachers out of there, you've got to be so careful about your online CV. You know, we talk about how everybody has become a celebrity in the digital age. For teachers, that's even more so. You know, you must uh, Facebook stalk <laughs> or at least conduct a social media audit of uh, people before you give them a job as a teacher. Every student, every parent is going to be checking out that teacher. So if there's anything to be found, you need to find it up front. Uh, for the teachers out there, be very conscious of your online CV. Google yourself. Go and look at old accounts. Um, make sure that there aren't inappropriate pictures that can be misused in memes, etc. Because I'm afraid they will just become fodder uh, for humor and um, exploitation by, by the kids at the school. And then I think that one of the big things that teachers need to be thinking about is when there is a duty on the school to intervene, because often what I'm seeing is that parents are going to the school and saying, my child is being cyberbullied, or this has happened to my child on a WhatsApp group, or somebody's created a fake account on Instagram and they're framing my child. And there's a temptation on the school to say, I'm not getting involved because this happened on a Saturday night on your WhatsApp group. It's too much, you know, and I understand that schools are stretched, teachers are stretched, but I think we've got to acknowledge that there's an ongoing harm because what you put on the internet on a Saturday night is still going to be at school when you get to school on Monday morning. And the school does have a duty to act in the best interests of the child. And there is a duty to act almost in loco parentis. And we're seeing an international trend where the school has failed to intervene in certain circumstances. It's led to suicide. Uh, then the parents coming to uh, take action against the school because they should have taken action. So I think that just my, my real message to the teachers out there, to the schools out there, is to say... Don't say this isn't our problem because it didn't happen on school premises or during school hours. If it affects students at the school, then I think there is a duty for the school to get involved and to take action. Again, in closing the conversation with Emma, 
I asked her, as a thought leader in this space, what services her firm, the Digital Law Company, offers to schools and individuals. So we are um, primarily educators. We, uh, I've got uh, two people who work for me, Sarah and Carla, and they're both wonderful. Carla speaks in Afrikaans and Sarah um, speaks in English. And we go around speaking to schools. We speak to parents. We speak to teachers. We speak to the children and we educate. And, you know, I, I suppose it's almost the modern day equivalent of the drug talk. <laughs> and you have children in the audience who are hopefully terrified and are never going to mess up as a result. And you have children who probably think this is never going to happen to me and, and completely ignore us. But if we can just change one person's attitude, uh, then then we've done our job. And, and and I think empowering teachers as well, what the, what their rights are. And then we are crisis managers. So if you have a child who finds themselves in trouble or you have an issue at your school, then you can get hold of us and we'll do everything we can to help in that instance, whether, you know, it's a it's a case of naked pictures being circulated or cyberbullying or a parent defaming the school or a teacher or um, somebody creating a Facebook account pretending to be the school or unauthorized use of the school's logos. It can be all sorts of things. So, And, and often it's a reputation management issue by that stage um, rather than a legal issue. We're thought leaders in the space, so we we spend a lot of time canvassing legislative change. We are involved in, in various public interest issues, and um, particularly victims of image-based violence. We have a company policy that we don't charge, um, and if there's a teenage girl who sent a picture or a teenage boy who sent a naked picture and that picture is being circulated or a video that's landed up on Pornhub, then we do everything we can to help in that situation. And containment, obviously, is always key. Certainly a lot of lessons to be learned from Shimmy, Laura and Emma. We are particularly grateful for their time and expertise and their insight into a very important issue. Again, check out our episode notes for links to their work and their services. We'd love to feature your responses to our podcast on future episodes of IBSC Exploring Boys Education. Why not record a voice memo with your thoughts and send these to us on IBSC at the IBSC.org or leave us a WhatsApp voice note on plus two seven seven one eight nine one one eight nine eight. Lastly, if this is the first episode of Exploring Boys Education to which you are listening, why not check out our past episodes? These are archived on our website or available to stream and download on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for listening. Until next time, from me, Bruce Collins, goodbye.